I want to echo what Anna said in the video. Happy Father's Day to all of you who are here in this room. To those of you joining us online right now, uh, happy Father's Day. I woke up this morning on my drive into the church. I called my own dad. I had to leave a message. There was a thunderstorm coming through the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And they have awful reception in their house. But just left a message on how my dad has modeled loyalty and commitment. And my dad was one who, he broke the cycle in his family. He, was, he did not have a father who modeled what it meant to be a good, loving, healthy father. So kind of my dad went about it as I'm going to do what I did not see done for me. And it, and it worked. And now he has raised three children to love God and want to use their lives for the glory of God. I also know some of you here, uh, your dads, they, maybe they created a cycle. And I know a lot of different emotions come into a day like this. As I was thinking this morning, I know those of you who are experiencing loss today of First Father's Day without a father. I was thinking about Amy and Laura and Donna and Terry. I know this is a different day for you, Terry Miller. And I wish I could hug all the ladies and just grab Terry Miller and give you not just a hug, but a hold. One of those cheek-to-cheek hugs that you love. Uh, For those of you online, we're so glad you joined us. It's a little different today. I'm excited. I was just excited to wake up knowing I was going to preach in front of people today. That for 10 weeks, I've been staring into a camera that rarely gives me an amen or a head nod. Uh, Now, Justin has been in the room while I have filmed sermons over the last two and a half months, and Justin did respond to six of those 10 sermons, and (laughs) I baptized him three times in the last few... last few weeks. So I'm grateful for what God has done in Justin's life. But uh, this is going to be a little different uh, as we transition into not really a new normal, but we're trying to bring together a live audience and a live stream. And so thankful for Kip and Jen Hill and Eric Cheney and Justin. And I probably shouldn't have even begun to name names, Bob and others who who have helped so much to try to bring this experience where we can bridge these worlds together. I've been in a series now for a little over six months uh, on our new vision. You can read about our new vision on our website. It's called Awakening. Our vision statement begins with the Sycamore View Church exists to awaken people to the greatness of Jesus. We have eight core values that we've laid out in front of the church and values that we want to shape our behavior, our thinking, to help create a culture in us. And many of these values are values that have been, have, been a, have been a part of our church culture for a long time. We just want to emphasize them and we want these to help form uh, events and initiatives as, as we move forward. I want to talk about a value today And it's this, that we genuinely care about physical and mental health. Uh, Jesus cared about people's well-being. I think when Jesus taught us to pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus had in mind that anything that sets itself up against the kingdom of God, whether that is uh, in the principalities, what's happening in the spiritual realm, or within our bodies, that we want that wrong to be made right. Uh, And the Bible didn't really have categories for mental health, and we've talked about that a lot even in our world over the last few years, and today I want to talk about physical and mental health. It's something Jesus cared about. It's something Jesus said. Hey, when it comes to the greatest command, you need to love God with your heart, your mind, your body, your soul. Everything you have, Jesus wants to help connect that to who God is. One of my favorite passages when I pray over this church, when I pace this room, when I pray over you is 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 3 through 5. And I want to read this, share with, with you why this is a, an important part of my prayer life. And I'm going to come back to this later to try to give a greater context. Because I don't think Paul 
Paul, as he wrote in 2 Corinthians 10 with mental health in mind. But here's, here's how it goes. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. So Paul says it right there. Look, people may attack me with words, but I'm not going to come back and attack them with words. Like there's, a, there's this human standard that he's talking about, like this whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We're not going to play that game in the church. It doesn't, it doesn't work in the church. When we deal with crisis or criticism or conflict as the people of God, we're not going to go about this like the world does. If they come at us with, with uh, unhealthy attacks, we're not going to go back at them with unhealthy attacks. We don't do it that way. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have, they have divine power to demolish, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I cannot tell you how many times I pray over this church, this right here, that we will know that we have been given power to demolish strongholds, that where walls have been set up to keep people from the knowledge of God and the goodness of God, that we will know that we've been given power to demolish those, and that we will take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. When I pastor people who are dealing, dealing with sexual sin, when uh, people who are dealing with unhealthy emotions. So many times I come to this right here and try to talk to them about what does it mean for us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. Now, how do we do that? How do we do it? I saw some research that came out this past week that a survey was taken of people throughout, and it was a broad spectrum of people throughout the United States. Only 14% of people said they are very happy right now in life. It has not been lower than 29% since 1972. The Laboratory of Neuroimaging at the University of Southern California, this was about a decade ago, they were doing research on the brain and how the brain works and our thought process, and they, they put out that the average, the average person in America has 60,000 thoughts per day. Our minds are constantly racing. Now check this out. Of the 60,000 thoughts per day, 85% of them are negative. And of those 85%, 95% of the 85% were things that you were repeating that you heard or thought the day before. So they're in your head that you're repeating. We live in a world where there's a lot of negativity and a lot of cynicism, a lot of criticism. And some of this is a world we inherited and some of this is a world that we created on our own. What we, have in, what we are allowing as input, what is coming into us, is shaping who we are and how we think. So Frances Jensen is a woman who has written a lot about the brain, especially the brain in teenagers. And about a decade ago, she talked about how we have this epidemic of anxiety and related disorders that are growing in our world. And specifically when it comes to teens, she talks about how mental health problems are more common in adolescents than asthma or diabetes. That 20% of teenagers today will suffer from mental or behavioral disorders serious enough to affect daily life. So in the church, we genuinely care about physical health and mental health. Philippians 4, 7 is this verse. I'm sure a lot of us have leaned on this in the past. It's about peace and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. The peace of God which, which transcends all circumstances. And then it says this, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus will guard your hearts and your minds. The Bible talks a lot about the heart and the Bible talks a lot about the mind. If I were to ask you what the two most important organs are in the body, I bet most people would say the heart and the mind. 
Maybe some people would vote for a lung. I don't think the appendix or the spleen's going to get many votes. But the heart and the mind, if I were to ask you for your spiritual makeup, what's the most important? I bet most people would say the heart and the mind, the heart and the brain. These are the most important, the most important organs, the heart and the brain. And when it comes to your spiritual makeup, how you think and your heart, your heart is where passions are, desire, emotions, dreams. Your mind is intellect, reasons, and thoughts. And I, think, I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm saying anything that's going to surprise anyone. Your physical health and mental health often go hand in hand. For those who are dealing with physical health, especially severe, like, I mean, cancer, chronic pain, it usually has an impact on your morale, how you think, your behavior, how you, your thought process. For those who are struggling with forms of anxiety and other things in your head, it can have an impact on your body. They often go hand in hand. What we've also learned over the last 15 weeks is when COVID-19 hit, it began in a crisis. Now, what a lot of psychologists teach is that a crisis only lasts for six weeks. So after six weeks, we're not so much dealing with a crisis, we're dealing with chronic stress. So for many people, we're trying to process chronic stress, how to navigate a world of a pandemic, and over the last month, how to navigate cultural climate and relational inequity when our minds are a little off right now. Because we're dealing with chronic stress. Romans 12 Verse 1 and 2 talks about the mind. And here's how Paul does it there. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Bible and science come together to teach us that there is a way for your brain to be wired and to be rewired to think differently about yourself and about the world. Um, I bet most of you here in person, you watching online, you're aware that there was a flu epidemic that hit from 1918 and lasted two to three years. And if you weren't aware of it, Prior to 2020, you're probably aware of it now that we've been in this. You've heard stories. The flu epidemic, they, they think it began in Kansas, of all places, and then spread throughout the entire world. 50 million people in the world lost their lives because of that flu. In America alone, just under 700,000 people died. But as historians have gone back to try to write about that flu epidemic, what they are shocked about is that there are very few stories that are told. There are very few monuments or statues. There's like this disappearance in the collective mind of what that epidemic was like. They, it's hard for them to find statues, monuments, anything that commemorates the lives that were lost or what that two to three year period was like. It was like there was mass amnesia. There are some historians, and when they write about the epidemic from 1918 to around 1920, they say it's America's, America's forgotten plague. There was like this mass amnesia. It was like the men in black flashy thing that like in 1920 or 21, they said, okay, all Americans, look at this. We're going to flash the light and then we're not going to talk about this anymore. Historians even talk about how the president, Woodrow Wilson, even made an effort not to talk about the epidemic in his speeches. Because if we didn't talk about it, then maybe we could get past it faster. And what it did is it left people wondering, okay, how do we process our pain or our grief or our trauma? 
And hopefully we're better prepared now to try to think hard. Okay, how am I thinking as we go through this? Because how I'm thinking now is going to impact how I'm thinking on the other side. Memory's wild, right? Like how we can remember things. We have selective memory, right? I kind of hate it about myself. that There are things I remember that I really don't need for the rest of my life. And there are things that I wish I could forget that haunt me. Like why is it? that I can remember every single play from the 1996 national championship game between Nebraska and Florida. But there are times I cannot remember the three items Casey asked me to pick up at Kroger on the way home after work. And one of them's medicine for a sick kid. I just forgot. Like, how is it? How is it that you can watch a movie one time and you can remember quotes and you can recite them to your friends, yet you study the Bible for months and you can't remember what it is you studied? Why, why is this? So come back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I just want to read the first five verses here in just a moment, but let me set it up like this. In 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, so the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul, this is a defense of Paul's ministry. It's not that the entire church or all the churches in Corinth are after Paul, but there are a few leaders who are trying to turn the church against Paul. And they're going about it with tactics. I mean, they're trying to destroy his character. They're going after, they're, they're making fun of the way he talks and his appearance. And, and they're, uh, they're talking about he's, how he's inferior because he wouldn't take their money when he was there. Paul got a job building tents to support himself while, while he was in Corinth. But Paul would try to, he tried to raise money in the church to send money to Jerusalem to support other churches. So there's all kind of attacks coming at Paul. So chapter 10 through 13 is this defense of his ministry. And it's not Paul saying, look, you are attacking me, so I'm going to attack you. Or how you attack me are the same methods I'm going to use to attack you. But here, the, these first five verses set this stage for what the next four chapters are going to do. And the way Paul goes about it is like this. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. I myself, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ... I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. And I think that's a little sarcasm there on the part of Paul. Right? They're, they're, they were coming at Paul with, man, you write. And you, when you write to us, like, you, you uh, challenge us. But when you're in front of us, you're, you, man, you're a wimp. Like, you won't say the same things when you're with us. Verse 2, I ask them when I am present, I need not show boldness by daring to oppose those who think we're acting according to human standards. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy and demolish strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought, or we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what Paul does... As he's about to give a defense of his ministry because Paul thinks the gospel and the unity of, of the church is on the line. This isn't just him defending himself. It's that the gospel unity of the church is on the line. And Paul's going to use warrior language to make this point. And the kind of stuff he's talking about of these strongholds and these obstacles, they're, they're walls that would set up to protect people in the case of war when there was war. And now Paul is talking about this strong power that comes from God that demolishes anything that keeps us from the knowledge of God and from uniting as a church. It's coming down. And it's almost like Paul is speaking out loud or in this case like writing out loud what he is processing like preparing himself to engage in this conflict with the church. I've got to remind myself, Paul, here's how I'm going to engage in this conflict. 
There's divine power to demolish any stronghold that's trying to keep us from unifying. And for Paul, what does it mean for me? Even as I write to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus. To me, this is beautiful. When it comes to criticism, when it comes to just how we navigate hard things in the church, to be reminded of this. Divine power has been given to us to destroy anything that's keeping us from the knowledge of God and the unity of the church. And that we want to take every captive and make it obedient to every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. So for those of you here, those of you watching online, just a show of hands. How many of you are really good about taking every thought captive and make it an obedient to Christ? Any experts in the room? Is this easy for you? This is tough, right? I mean, I, I confess, I'm addicted to adrenaline. I'm, I'm addicted to speed and going fast. I'm addicted to dreaming and visioning. And there are times I come to Casey and I'm like, baby, I planned a vacation for our family in the year 2023. And let me show you what this is like. And Casey will respond by saying, can we talk about the calendar this afternoon and tomorrow of where the boys need to be, who's gonna drop them off and who's gonna pick them up? There are times I probably come to the staff and I'm like, guys, look, nine months from now, check this out. And sometimes you're like, uh, we just had to like change church camp and some other things. So let us just get through this week. Like if there's some things, just the way my mind works. There are times I lie in bed at night and just stare at the ceiling and Casey will wake up and look over and Casey's like, look, I know you're not talking out loud, but your thoughts are so loud right now. I cannot sleep. Like you've got to turn this off. Erwin McManus is an author that I know our staff has heard him speak before, best-selling author, and he helps us with this. Because if it's true that we have around 60,000 thoughts per day, if you tried to take 60,000 thoughts and, and take them captive and make them obedient to Jesus, it's impossible. Try taking 10 thoughts a day and make them obedient to Christ, right? It, it would drive you nuts. And McManus reframes it like this. If you're taking notes, if there's anything you hear from me this morning, I want this to help you as you imagine and think about 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. McManus says this, Maybe it's possible that the only way to take thoughts captive is by shaping a mindset and a worldview. The only way to take thoughts captive is to have a mindset that guides and filters our thoughts. So maybe to take thoughts, thoughts captive and make them obedient to Jesus isn't about the individual thought. It's that we take seriously the kind of filter we have in our lives that is helping us process every thought that we have. This is hard. Because our construction of our reality isn't 100% in alignment with God's reality. The influence of others upon our thinking probably has a greater impact than we want to admit and we let others do the thinking for us more than we want to admit which has really been a challenge over the last month because I bet when some people have tried to learn and try to navigate like how do we just talk about relational inequity or black lives matter where do you go to try to learn like here's how I know this is so true like more people like people have an impact on my thinking more than I want to admit if you gave me an inspiring, encouraging quote, yet at the bottom it says that it was made by a New York Yankee, there's a good chance that I'm going to read that quote with a little skepticism. If you gave me a quote, or you look at a quote, 
And it could be the most inspiring, encouraging quote. But if on that quote there is a CNN symbol or a Fox News symbol or an MSN symbol or it was made by Anderson Cooper or Laura Ingram or Rush Limbaugh or Barack Obama, almost before you read the quote, you have already decided in your mind if it's something you're going to pay attention to or are you already defensive as if it's a quote I'm not going to like. We let others do more thinking for us than we want to admit. So how do we proactively create a filter through which our thoughts are processed in a way that honors God? How do we proactively create a filter through which our thoughts are processed in a way that honors God? And church, this takes prayer and surrender. This takes a lot of discipline. And this takes community. I think you can think through thoughts on your own. But thinking through thoughts and forming a filter in your life and community is the best way to go. Now, as I think about mental illness and mental health, and we talk about taking thoughts captive, here's what it's not. And what it's not is us thinking that, let's just pray today that anybody who's been dealing with anxiety or negative thoughts, or they'll just go away and tomorrow you won't have them anymore. I wish it worked that easy. In some way, the Bible doesn't seem to be super helpful when it comes to, comes to things like this. Because sometimes you read the Bible and the Bible would just say, like, stop thinking that way. Don't be anxious. If you have burdens, just cast them over to God. Just give them to God. And sometimes we respond with, I've been trying for years, but it's not working. I've been trying to get rid of anxious thoughts. I don't want anxious thoughts. I don't know anybody who goes to a place or signs up or waits in line or registers or signs up for a one-year membership for depression, for anxiety, for their morale and mind just to be off. This isn't, people don't ever say, you know what, in 2020 or 2021, I want to know what it's like to battle depression. Like this, it doesn't happen that way. Science and the Bible come together to teach us that we can train our minds and we can work to wire and rewire our thoughts, but it's hard work. We have a Celebrate Recovery here on Tuesdays, and they've taught me a lot about this because Celebrate Recovery acknowledges that sometimes it takes years for you to form unhealthy habits in your life, and it may take years for you to break them too, but you've got to start somewhere. There are thousands of battles you will face in your life, and the greatest are often those that are fought right there in your mind because not only is the enemy coming after your heart, the enemy is coming after your mind to plant lies, seeds of doubt, and often they are lies of who you are not, but they want to convince you that this is who you are. So Casey and some of her girlfriend's preacher wife group, who she's with, they talk about how there is this line of truth. There's a line of truth. And a lot of times, a lie that grows in your life that begins to impact your identity in Christ, it doesn't begin here, it begins here, and then it grows. But there's this line of truth, and if we are not pressing in the truth and having other peoples in the church speaking truth into us, then we can often end up somewhere we don't want to be. Here's how it often goes. There are times where I'm out of town, and I'll be gone for a couple of nights. And around 9.30 or so, the heater will come on. And Casey hears the heater come on. And then Casey thinks, was it the heater? Or is that somebody walking outside of our house? And I'll get home at like 1 a.m. and I'll see bats and golf clubs all over the house, like by every window and every door, because it went from a heater to maybe someone's out there. Maybe someone's trying to break in. 
Josh just spoke in Washington, D.C. Maybe there was someone in D.C. who knows someone in Memphis who knows Josh is gone. So they know that I'm here by myself and they're coming to take our TVs and who knows what. And maybe it's not just one person. Maybe it's one person with three friends. So Casey's already on the defensive thinking if Home Alone guy can do this, I can do this too. And it started with a heater turning on. A husband and wife gets in an argument one morning. And they left for work and, and they didn't really fix the argument. It wasn't a bad argument. But then the wife begins to think around 10 o'clock, why, why did he not apologize? Is, this a, is there something deeper going on in my marriage? He did mention the other day that there was a secretary, a new secretary that he thought was really nice. I wonder what she looks like. Let me go to the website and see, she, see what she looks like. Oh, she's really pretty. You know who's not pretty? Me. I'm not pretty. I wonder if he thinks I'm pretty. Has he always thought I'm pretty or not really? Which all started with a little argument one morning. And we could do this with the way men come at success and ambition. We could come at this with all different things where there's this line of truth that begins with some, something really small that turns into something that has created a filter for you that you're thinking about all of life through. I know people who will fight for others, yet they won't fight for themselves. I know people who will fight for themselves and they won't fight for others. I want to encourage people today to take this seriously. Do not live in the familiarity of captivities to your lies or your poor filters. Do not live in the familiarity of your captivity to your lies or your poor filters, but risk the adventure of what can come in a fight for freedom, both for your heart and your mind. Jesus is on the side of sick people. Whether it's those who are physically sick or mentally disturbed, Jesus is on the side of those who are not right right now. And it's not a sin to be sick. God is our helper. The Bible talks about how God is our helper. And when it comes to physical and mental health, God is our helper. And sometimes God helps because of, of responding to prayer. Sometimes God helps through medicine and science. Sometimes God helps through friends who are there to support other people no matter what. Sometimes God is there to remind us through the truth of the Bible and as we speak truth into each other that God is for us, that God is coming for us. God wants to save us, redeem us, surround us, keep us. God God thought that we were worth dying for and God thinks that we are worth living for. So let's give it a shot this week to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus. To have the filter in place, the mindset in place, to think about the world through a lens of the kingdom of God. We have a connect form on our website. If you go to our website, sycamoreview.org, there's a new Connect card. And for those of you who are here, there's a Connect card at our Connect Center. would love for you to take that out. If you're interested in baptism, knowing more about this church, if there's any way we can pray for you. And what better place for us to go and think about how Jesus has made it to where we can be rewired again than when we come to the table. So for those of you here, I want to invite you to take out your individual cup. And moving forward, we have individual cups. If you plan to come and join us in the weeks to come for our in-person services, you can bring your own communion, or we have some here, these individual little cups. For those of you who are home at home, this is a time I would encourage you to go and take, get the bread and the cup as we prepare to take this. And I just want us to think as we take this in our hands today. 
that there is no better filter to use to think about life than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus died to set everything right, our hearts right, our minds right. And it begins right now with us remembering all it is that Jesus has done for us through death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus gave it all. I'm going to pray one prayer for the bread and the cup and invite us to take this as a church. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. And God, we give thanks for all that you have done in and through Jesus. And I pray for those right now who hear this message and they know they're in a place where mentally they're just a little off, God, that you will help them right now, whether they are in this room, if they're at home surrounded by family members or friends or a life group, or if they're there alone by themselves right now, God, surround them with the community they need to speak truth in their lives. I pray for people right now listening to me as I pray who have allowed lies to come into their mind that you will come with your power to destroy them, reframe them, speak and declare truth, your truth, let it win. And now with this bread and the cup, declare the truth of this moment that has transformed our lives forever. Declare this truth over us that we may take this in victory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.